Wednesday, April 12th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Yort de Jong, lecturer in public policy and management at HKS and faculty director of the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative. Professor de Jong is author of Dealing with the Dysfunction, Innovative Problem Solving in the Public Sector. Julie Boatwright-Wilson, Harry Kahn, Senior Lecturer in Social Policy at HKS, and Matt R. Andrews, Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at HKS, provided responses. Tony Sage, Director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, and Daewoo Professor of International Affairs, moderated. It's a great occasion with the launch of uh, Yorit's uh, new book on dealing with dysfunction. I must admit, when I saw the title, it was I thought it was dealing with Harvard, but uh, <laughs> that's probably uh, a more difficult one to get to grips with. Uh, it's a, for those of you who haven't read it, it's a fascinating account which draws mainly from case studies uh, based in the Netherlands, but it's much more than that. If you read the framing uh, of the sets of questions and also if you look at... Uh, the concluding aspects that come out of that, they're very portable in the sense that these are challenges which we deal with across a whole range of different uh, environments. And I know my colleagues are going to go into detail on this, but the one sentence which really for me uh, highlighted it really was quite early in the book where he just stated, worst dysfunction is when multiple organizations share responsibility for a problem, but no single organization is responsible for solving it. And that drives, I think, a lot of the narrative in the book, but I think it also drives a lot of Yorick's career uh, over the years and also his time here. If you think about the field lab course uh, that Yorick uh, has created here with help of other colleagues uh, through the Ash Center, a lot of that has also been driven by bottom-up approaches trying to think about how different parts of an administration can collaborate to produce solutions and the initial work was around problem uh, properties where different parts of the local administration knew there was an issue with this particular property but no one really had drawn it together about the role that, that particular problem property was playing within the community and so I think that's derives from uh, this earlier work uh, that Yorit has done and the case studies through the Cafe Brigade that he's drawn out uh, in this uh, study in a way of approaching uh, dysfunction, uh, which is not thinking this can be solved by top-down solutions, but requires uh, participation, it requires integration, and it requires also sort of bottom-up agency uh, in this process to reduce better results. So uh, we have uh, Yorit, who will first uh, introduce some of the key uh, ideas from this book. As you know, uh, Yorit is the faculty director of the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative, uh, cited over there in the nice sparkling uh, offices. And uh, <laughs> that has been quite a challenge uh, to put together, uh, dealing with uh, colleagues across Harvard and integrating that with uh, colleagues from Bloomberg has not been a simple exercise, but I think it is a, a compliment to Yorit that he's kept everything moving and uh, reaching a great uh, conclusion from that. Bjorit is also the academic director here of innovations in the government program uh, at the Ash Center uh, and has helped us with a lot of intellectual guidance with that and has worked closely with other colleagues, Steve, uh, Quinton Main, uh, who is here, on um, thinking about frameworks, thinking about these kinds of challenges. Then we'll have 
two people uh, discussing this, uh, Matt Andrews sitting here on my left. And Matt is a senior lecturer in public policy. And he does a lot of work on public sector reform, uh, budgeting, financial management reform, a number of other issues. And was just telling me uh, he must be racking up a lot of frequent flyer miles. He's spending uh, one week every month uh, in Albania and one week every month in Sri Lanka and working on these challenges. And Matt, if you don't know Matt, has a phenomenal capacity for thinking about challenges facing developing countries and their administrations and how do you get them to think smart about uh, solutions to the kinds of public management challenges with which they're confronted. We're also very lucky that uh, Julie Wilson is with us, and Julie is the Henry Kahn Senior Lecturer in, in Social Policy. Her work has been very important in areas of poverty uh, policy, family policy, uh, child welfare, the juvenile ju uh, justice process. She's been a very active participant in our innovations uh, program here, uh, judging, assessing, analyzing, and working out cases from many of those uh, groups uh, which have uh, submitted into the Innovations Awards program. So I think we'll have a really fascinating afternoon, and I would call on first Yorick to make some introductory comments. Then we'll have comments from our two other participants, and then we'll open up the floor to those of you who are here. Please, Yorick. Can I still see you? <laughs> We can hear you, you're right, so it's okay. Uh, facial expressions are important, <laughs> <laughs> just to gauge how things are going. Uh, well, thank you so much for that introduction, Tony, and, and thanks, everyone. It's nice to see so many bureaucracy enthusiasts, because that's what we have in the room here, right? Everybody loves bureaucracy. I, I love bureaucracy. I'm not afraid to say that. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, I'm, I'm really um, uh, you know, happy that uh, we can have this conversation. Um, bureaucracy is something near and dear to my heart but it routinely disappoints. And so this book is basically, uh, the aim of this book is to uh, untangle the knots of the idea and the practice. So uh, before we get started, um, I'd just like to see uh, how engaged exactly you are with this concept and the practice of bureaucracy. So if I can ask you, if you're able, to stand up right now. So uh, those of you who have never had a frustrating bureaucratic experience with government or business, uh, they can now sit down. <laughs> those of you who have never been partially responsible for creating a little bit of bureaucracy for somebody else can sit down. Honest. Okay, see? There's still innocent people here, right? Those of you who have never tried to fix some of the bureaucracy that you created for others can sit down. If you've never tried to fix some of the bureaucracy and red tape that you created for others, sit down. Those of you who have succeeded in fixing bureaucracy <laughs> can still stand, yeah? Well, <laughs> yeah. So, I think this is a pretty self-selected group of like-minded people, so now all can sit down. So we've established that we are not only familiar with the concept and the experience, we're also uh, committed to doing something about it. And we've probably also all experienced how hard it is to, so to speak, cut red tape. Um, so my inspiration for this work of understanding and fighting bureaucracy or improving it uh, really comes from this guy. 
This guy is an activist, and he was a clerk at an insurance company um, back in uh, Czech Republic, before it was called the Czech Republic. And uh, he was working day in, day out to help people who had fallen through the cracks of the insurance bureaucracy. Uh, and at night, when he came home, uh, he wrote novels. And so some of you may know these novels. This is Franz Kafka, um, of course, a giant in world literature. Uh, he wrote about the suffocating effect of bureaucracy in the modern world. And in the characters in his novels are all lost. They don't know where to go with their complaint. They don't know what the rules are and if they apply to them. And the interesting thing is it's not just the people at the receiving end of bureaucracy who feel powerless. It's also the bureaucrats, they feel powerless. Nobody really fully understands what's going on, and nobody really feels empowered to do anything about it. And so people almost feel like we have to accept this as a fact of life, right? There's nothing we can do about it. And I, I always refuse to, to accept that. And it's uh, basically because my parents were uh, social workers. They worked with uh, very vulnerable communities, and uh, my mother was uh, working with immigrants in the Netherlands uh, who, you know, tried to kind of participate in society. My dad worked on welfare-to-work programs of people who really didn't have a lot of chance of getting ahead in life. And so at the dinner table when I was young, I heard all these stories about people who were being filled by the system and disappointed by the system, as well as people who were gaming the system and cheating the system and taking advantage of others, right? So um, bureaucracy is central to that experience. And uh, the question is, um, what is it about governments that makes it so bureaucratic, but also what is it about bureaucracy that makes it, makes it so elusive? And some people say government is the problem, right? And this is Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. This is the most funny character in, in TV series. He's a libertarian that starts working for the government to make sure it doesn't work. <laughs> and then so... Uh, the interesting thing is that if people uh, critique government for being bureaucratic, they forget, first of all, that most private sector businesses are also bureaucracies, right? You've had that experience if you try to change your internet provider or something or your uh, phone uh, provider or your bank. Uh, but they also forget that um, bureaucracy was created to uphold certain values that are inherently attached to democratic governance. And so for that, um, we have to um, go to this gentleman, friendly-looking fellow, Max Weber, uh, who was the first social scientist that really uh, coined the concept of bureaucracy academically. And what he said is that, you know, if you look at bureaucracy, both in private sector and in public sector, uh, we really see a couple of characteristics that define bureaucracy. And uh, one is regulated continuity. So if you go to an agency one day, you get the same treatment as the next day. Uh, expert officialdom. So uh, you don't get a job in a, in a government organization because you know uh, the boss or your uh, family, uh, with, you know, you're a relative of the people who work there, but you get it because of you, you, you qualify. Standardization. So there is a process that you know, is standardized so that we can produce more efficiently, but also we get equal treatments. Um, and formalization is important so we can actually um, track our actions and we have uh, documentation of 
what it is uh, that was decided. And we have, you know, if for um, appeal and redress, we, we, we have a basis uh, for that if we have uh, paperwork. Hierarchical organization, so the buck would stop somewhere. So you actually have a way of holding people accountable and nobody, like in the Kafka novels, can just point at others. Uh, and specialization, which makes total sense, a division of labor. Not everybody can do everything. And so if we have multiple tasks, we have to organize them in a rational way. So can I just do a, you know, straw poll? How many people feel that, you know, these are pretty good organizational principles to do complex work? See? Well, of course, this is kind of a skewed audience. We had established that before. But, you know, if you look at this objectively, it's not so bad. And that's because it's rooted in values. So bureaucracy, according to Weber, was not a system of rules. It's a system of values. And those values are accountability and uh, fairness, reliability, efficiency, integrity, and rationality. So those are all very coherent and rooted in the notion that we have a rule of law and that we have equal treatment, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the experience that we have is very often the opposite. Uh, we feel that where accountability was intended, we see rigidity. People cannot do anything because they don't feel that they're, they can account for making exceptions, for example. We feel that it's not fair if, you, if people don't look at your specific circumstances and just treat you like a number. Uh, we feel that bureaucracy is unpredictable because we do get different answers if we talk to different people. And uh, where efficiency was intended, we feel it's cumbersome. And we have a lot of paperwork. We have to provide the same information multiple times. And integrity, we question that. If we see erratic bureaucratic behavior, we feel like, hmm, don't know exactly uh, if I'm intended, you know, if, if I'm uh, supposed to give a bribe here to make things go faster. Not just in developing countries, also in this country. Um, and where rationality was kind of assumed, we really see absurdity, like unbelievable. I had a case where a guy that um, had his legs amputated, right, and uh, was entitled to a wheelchair and had to prove every year that still uh, his legs didn't grow back, unfortunately, right? So it's absurd to have to prove every year that your legs are still not there and that you're still entitled to that wheelchair. So. Uh, we're all familiar with that experience, but we don't always understand how a system of values that was intended to really power democratic governance turn into its own worst enemy. So a couple of uh, reasons why that might be the case. Uh, one of the reasons is that, as Tony already uh, uh, talked about, there is very often a multitude of organizations, a multiplicity, where uh, the left hand, because of the division of labor, doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And uh, we've divided up the work of governments in so many different pieces that we look at the same person, the same family, the same business from multiple perspectives. Uh, and, uh, you know, some agencies are focused on delivering services and others are focused on imposing obligations. Uh, Malcolm Sparrow's work is very much focused on one of the my favorites of your work is imposing duties on citizens, right? It's a very different nature of work uh, than the uh, delivery of services. But in practice, you're often working with both uh, service delivery and enforcement. And so 
the experience is that we are subject to encounters with government uh, where some are service-oriented and others are uh, obligation-oriented or enforcement-oriented. And uh, when you combine the two, uh, you get confusion. Confusion on the part of the uh, client, but also confusion on the part of the, um, the, the agencies. So here's one example of that. This is my favorite, my favorite case in the book. It's uh, uh, Tamar Agun, who is uh, an immigrant entrepreneur in Amsterdam, who tries to start a sandwich shop. Well, it's a great idea, right? But um, he spends two years trying to comply with all the reg regulations that are applicable. Um, so the food regulation, food safety, fire safety, zoning commission, tax regulation, uh, and so on and so forth. In, in total, he had to deal with 15 different agencies. They say, well, if, if it's so hard, how is it possible that anyone can ever start a business? Well, the answer is most people don't comply and don't even bother to comply and get away with it. But this guy was not typical. He tried to do everything right because he just felt better that way. And, uh, and so uh, it, could, it could happen that he had to, um, in order to uh, get permits for his business, he had to um, show a lease of the landlord. But in order to get the lease from the landlord, he had to have a bank guarantee. But in order to get the bank guarantee, he had to get the permits from the government. Right? So this is a, a catch-22 or you know, a situation where you can't escape. And, uh, and so because that took so much time and none of the agencies, of course, talked to each other, he was the guy that knew most about the regulations. He would be the expert in Amsterdam. If, if he should start a business around that, right, and not around selling sandwiches. Uh, but it's, it's, of course, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem, not just for this guy uh, who wants to just sell sandwiches, uh, because he loses uh, time, money, entitlements, opportunities. So what else is he going to do, right? But it's also, uh, for society at large, a problem because all those agencies, they work, you know, powered by taxpayer euros. And so they're not being effective because even if they do want to deliver services and, and have people comply with regulations, that doesn't happen. Uh, and uh, they're missing out on economic activity. No taxes collected on this. Some value is created for society because if you have a closed sandwich shop, you have no risk at food poisoning. You have no risk at you know, burning alive when the fire uh, uh, occurs. And, um, and so, of course, if there's no sandwich shop, it can't conflict with the zoning regulations. So the best way to make sure nothing ever happens is that you actually uh, uh, prevent any, any initiative. Uh, but, of course, there's not just a welfare loss to society and to the individual. There is also a justice loss uh, in terms of how does this person feel about the government? How does this person feel about society, you know, being um, uh, inhibited to pursue his uh, career? And there is, of course, because this was an immigrant, also a social equality and equity issue. Because if you were a white middle-aged uh, consultant or accountant and you want to start a business, it's really not a problem, right? You, just, you, 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 get, you get to work in five days. But if you are uh, part of a minority group, uh, you, know, you disproportionately uh, suffer from a system that is uh, you know, confused and conflicted in terms of its ability to deliver services and uh, help you comply uh, with, with the regulations. And so we actually did further research on this and turned out that 40% of entrepreneurs in Amsterdam are in this category. So this is more than an inconvenience to an individual. 
this is now a public policy issue, right? And a justice issue, I would argue. So uh, one of the things, you know, inspired by, um, uh, you know, Kafka, my parents, but also by, I think I saw Mark come in. Where is Mark? Oh, he'll come back. So uh, I got another slide on him. <laughs> so uh, so uh, Mark Moore here at the S Center has been a really important source of inspiration in terms of applying academic thinking into practice, right? And to really make sure that you develop ideas and produce knowledge that's actionable and that can help you improve uh, situations in real time and then learn from it. So the Kafka Brigade is a social enterprise that I co-founded. Uh, in 2003 uh, that was really focused on helping governments diagnose really bad cases of di uh, bureaucratic dysfunction and then uh, mobilize a system of uh, frontline professionals as well as mid-level managers, policymakers, um, and politicians to address those uh, issues of confusion and conflicting values, competing values that underlied the, uh, the symptoms of bureaucracy. And so uh, what we did uh, with the Kafka Brigade was uh, a team of about 15 researchers. Um, we really focused on, uh, you know, an answer to the disappointment of the red tape cutting agendas, the big blueprint, top-down master plans to eradicate bureaucratic dysfunction. Almost every country has had one, and still, you know, I think even Trump uh, recently launched another initiative like, we're going to cut regulation with 75%, and we're just going to make government run like a business. And, uh, and the simplicity and naivete uh, behind those, um, uh, you know, those ideas and policy proposals uh, is, is stunning, uh, especially when we know that very few of those uh, agendas have actually worked. In fact, the OECD uh, published this book in 2010, Why is Administrative Simplification So Complicated? <laughs> and uh, this is a really fun book. They didn't give the answer, by the way. They were just <laughs> grappling with it, just like another book that con contributes to the confusion. So, uh, I mean, they were like, oh, all these governments have tried to cut red tape and it didn't work. It was, or it only, they were only able to pick the low-hanging fruit and they weren't able to really address the the, the complex issues. So that was all a motivation for me to do this work in practice. And then um, uh, this, this uh, slogan from a book in 1977 from um, uh, Herbert Kaufman, I like this a lot. What we need is a detached clinical approach rather than heated attacks. The delicate wielding of the scalpel rather than the furious flailing about with a meat axe. And so I saw that as a mission statement. It's like, so let's, let's do that, right? Let's come up just like a doctor would need better diagnostic protocols to diagnose exactly what kind of disease you have, right? Rather than just prescribing a treatment. Like, you have a headache? Well, I'm sorry, we have to cut off your head, right? No more headache. Uh, that is the equivalent of cutting regulation if something is, feels bureaucratic, right? If you cut out the regulation, then, you know, no more paperwork. But what happens then, right? You might actually made a big mistake. So I wanted to have a more sophisticated repertoire of interventions. So uh, the method that we used for this is action research. And um, there's actually a long history of action research. And action research is uh, uh, helpful and appropriate when there is no clear sense of what the most important variables are in a system. And also when it is uh, harder to really uh, get closer to the 
um, um, to the the uh, the subject, the object of your study, without intervening in it. So. Uh, one of the founders of Action Research is Kurt Lewin, an important uh, organizational scientist. He said, if you truly want to understand a system, try changing it, right? Because then you see the action and it, it reveals itself. Uh, you know, I've also heard um, uh, comparisons with acupuncture, right? An acupuncturist, the, the Harvard acupuncturist here, doesn't know what he's doing. He's, that's what he says himself. I don't know how this works. I just put a needle in there, and at some point, somebody starts freaking out. And then I know <laughs> that I'm onto something, right? So what action research does is engaging with practice and carefully uh, recording the observations, but then interacting and engaging with practitioners and trying to develop new interpretations, right? And that helps move along uh, uh, you know, the, the field of study. Uh, but at the same time, it has the additional benefit of actually getting some work done. So that's what this book was, um, was built on. Uh, so it's rigorously empirical. It's, it, it appreciates and acknowledges that this is a rich phenomenon and it doesn't uh, you know, uh, simplify it and reduces it to just a number of individual variables. Um, it is also deliberately democratic. It is empowering and gives a voice to uh, those uh, you know, professionals in the system that uh, are rarely asked about their experience. And it is responsive and iterative. So you have to do a lot of reflection on the method and on the findings and, you know, uh, continuously improve the research design. Um, and so, um, so what I, so that was the action research. Then I also did the uh, literature research. So this book, if you decide to buy it, uh, one of the big values uh, to you, one of the big uh, value propositions to you, is that you know, I spent three summers reading everything I could about bureaucratic dysfunction and summarized and organized it so you don't have to do that. Right? <laughs> I have to say, if you decide you know, you're interested, like, oh, I want to know where this comes from, that literature is way more interesting than the literature on high-performing organizations. Right? <laughs> that is really boring. Uh, you know, it's the dysfunction, I mean, all those books are, and articles are written with, you know, you, you just can read between the lines, this person has really suffered, and this is kind of a way to get back at whatever they, uh, but it's, it's, it's really interesting, and it's scattered uh, in psychology, in organizational science, political science, management theory, leadership theory, um, and, uh, and sociology, of course. So, um, uh, so I, I organized the literature into four big buckets um, with the purpose of developing this diagnostic framework. And so uh, one big bucket is the perspective of the clients, you know, the, the absurdity, the, uh, the frustrating experience uh, of, um, of being lost in a bureaucracy. But there's also a big literature on organizational behavior uh, and the role of the um, professional frontline worker. Michael Lipsky has done a lot of work on that that was very helpful. Uh, and, and many more, uh, Freitzen, have also really emphasized uh, what it is that culture does. Very often, people feel something is dysfunctional because of the rules, but in many cases, of, uh, you see that it wasn't, there weren't any rules. People had, I, I call them phantom regulations. People feel like they're rules, and they feel that they have less uh, uh, space to maneuver than they really have in, in reality. Uh, then there's, of course, uh, the, the uh, level of structure, which has to do with organizational design or institutional design. It's basically how we shape 
uh, or institutional framework for providing services or imposing duties. And uh, the whole, you know, uh, Julie has done a lot of work on uh, wraparound services in, uh, in juvenile care and the way we uh, structure the relationships between, uh, first of all, the state and the client, but also the state and nonprofit providers, that system, uh, you know, can be designed in a more or less helpful way. Um, and then there's this level of statecraft, which goes more to political philosophy. How do we think about the social compact? You know, uh, what, how do we really feel about what, uh, uh, what the rights of citizens are, what, what our privileges, what our services that, you know, may vary from year to year. Uh, but then also, what are the policy tools that will best help accomplish the goals uh, and deliver the goods that we, uh, we want to promise our citizens? For example, if you want to uh, change people's behavior when it comes to personal health, you know, are you using um, uh, direct services, education, are you using tax incentives, or are you using uh, nudging choice architecture? There's all different kinds of policy tools that you are that you can choose from if you want to uh, accomplish a certain uh, social outcome. But then, of course, very often bureaucratic dysfunction is the result of choosing of a poor choice in policy tools. And then improving that policy tool will not get you closer to where you want to be. You have to take a real big step back and see what are we trying to accomplish here, and is this the right tool? So at all those levels, you can have problems. And I'll show you uh, uh, using an example of Gwen. And so this is one of the cases that I uh, wrote up in the book, but also I was personally involved in kind of untangling the situation that this uh, poor girl was in. She unfortunately has a chronic disease, uh, will not have long to live, uh, is confined to a wheelchair, uh, and, um, and was subjected to a lot of, you know, um, checks. I mean, she had to get checked every uh, year and had to go through all kind of tests just to make sure that her mother could keep her parking permit close to the home, right? And just to make sure that she could still be in that wheelchair, which was an expensive one, and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, the situation was like this. Um, she was entitled, this is the good news, in many countries people don't have those rights, but in the Netherlands you could actually uh, have a parking spot close to your home, uh, you know, you would have, um, uh, you know, a tax deduction for your van, uh, you could get a wheelchair for free, and of course there's medical assistance. But, this is what bureaucracy does, division of labor, different agencies at different levels of government are responsible for providing this. And then, of course, this is where the work comes in. Uh, the mother had to quit her job because there was so much paperwork, and in addition to caring for your child, it was impossible. Uh, but the doctor was also a victim because the doctor knew, of course, that she wasn't curable, but still had to spend time doing those useless checks. And one check was, how long can the child walk without support? And the other was, how far can the child walk without support? So there had to be a different check to establish both those facts that would make her uh, you know, eligible for these services. So when you look at the analysis using the diagnostic framework, you see that at the level of red tape of the client, you see uh, you know, a lot of frustration and loss of value. But you also see that the professional feels alienated from the job. She never uh, trained to be a doctor just to, to do useless work. She wants to cure people. Uh, you see at the level of the, uh, of the structure, 
um, that you know there's uh, problems with alignments and coordination. Um, and as a matter of statecraft, there's an issue like what are we really trying to accomplish here for this girl? You know, and would other policy tools, maybe a direct payment, uh, be better? Um, and uh, so on all those levels, we saw that there were questions and unresolved value conflicts. Uh, so if you really want to make things better for Gwen, you actually have to dig a little deeper than just saying, oh, all that paperwork, let's cut the regulations. Right. So what did we learn? Um, we learned uh, a lot of things uh, in this process. And um, mostly that uh, in the 14 cases that I wrote up in the book, they're really like extreme clinical cases uh, of bureaucratic dysfunction that we analyzed using this framework. And what we did is we said, uh, okay, so what are the similarities and differences between those cases? So for example, we had two similar cases that both had a, uh, you know, a business that was you know, um, an entrepreneur that wanted to get started but couldn't get the licenses, like the sandwich shop guy. But in one city, the problem was that the staff was untrained and demotivated, but the regulatory framework was kind of okay, and the business processes were kind of okay. In the other uh, city, uh, the staff was motivated, but the regulatory framework contained a lot of conflicting regulations, and the business processes were uh, sequential and not parallel. Right? So you see that even if the symptoms are similar, the underlying causes of bureaucratic dysfunction can be very different. They can be at different levels. And therefore, if you want to do something about it, uh, you have to really do the diagnosis first before you start suggesting remedies. I mean, suggesting a remedy like cutting regulation is one, training staff is another, using IT, business process redesign. Those are all great things, but only if they address the problem that you have, right? But this is why you have to uh, have that diagnostic repertoire. Uh, so um, the three lessons that I'll leave you with is the um, Anna Karenina principle, I call it, you know, <laughs> each family, all, all family happilies look alike, all unhappy families uh, are unhappy in their own way, and uh, that's the case with uh, bureaucratic dysfunction too. Uh, the second point, real remedies uh, require a deep diagnosis. So this book offers uh, those tools for clinical work, but they also kind of lay out an agenda for, uh, you know, more advanced social science research. And then three, this is adaptive work. This is why I'm really happy that Matt is here, because Matt found out in his work in developing countries that those big institutional reform agendas were, you know, just, uh, I think you used the term isomorphic mimicry, right? And uh, by Paolo Nemeggio. And it didn't really get the work done. And ultimately, I found the same thing with uh, bureaucratic dysfunction in developed countries, that it really, re you really have to rely on mobilizing um, agency in the system where a lot of people with distributed leadership capabilities uh, you know get together and and improve the situation from a variety of different angles um, and so creating you know, this is also related to the work of Heifetz and um, uh, and Bob Keegan uh, that really focus on adaptive work and uh, giving back the problem to a group of people that then collectively can work on it. But that requires not just distributed leadership, also a sponsor, somebody who commits to this issue. And so uh, the book offers a lot of ideas and lessons on how you might do that. So I'll leave you with the, the last uh, uh, story of somebody who tried to do it. He came very, very close, just not close enough, right? 
uh, this was before the book was written, so you can't blame him. <laughs> but this, uh, so I did this work with farmers in the Netherlands who uh, came up with a really innovative idea, which was that you know, if you move a shed um, uh, along your, your, your acre, you know, then the chickens you know, can you know, peck you know, for six weeks, and then you move it, and then the soil can recover. But the chickens are healthier. They're completely free range. It's good for the chicken, it's good for the soil, it's good for the uh, consumer, because it's apparently good, good meat, uh, and it's good for the economy, because this is a new product, right? However, if you want to move your shed to another piece of your land, you need a permit. Uh, two permits, actually. One to build something and one to destroy something uh, or demolish something, because, hey, there's no uh, shed in the old place anymore, so you must have demolished it, right? Here's the logic of the bureaucracy. So then we convened everybody in the system, all the you know, frontline clerks and mid-level managers and policymakers, and then this guy from the Ministry of Agriculture came all the way to the farm and where we had this meeting. And he came and he said, like, yeah, I really understand the problem. I feel really bad, but um, I have this conflict, right? Like, I really I wear two hats here. One is that I'm, you know, for 40% of, 60% uh, of my time, I'm responsible for poultry po policy. And for 40% of my time, I'm working on innovation. And the 40% is on, on, on Thursdays and Fridays. Today is Wednesday. So, uh, you know, I have to focus on the poultry policy. I can't possibly think innovatively today. <laughs> right? So here you see the internal dilemma of somebody who tries to transcend the limitations that bureaucracy inherently puts on you. Uh, and so this guy got close. He at least had the empathy. <laughs> He just lacked the tools to do it. So I hope that with this book, um, you know, I give uh, tools to people like that and also to you. So for those of you um, who raised your hands at the beginning or stood up and said, you know, I've experienced bureaucracy, my advice is read the book. You increase your tolerance. <laughs> uh, for those of you who have produced bureaucracy, I, my advice is read the book and be careful next time. And for those of you who really want to, uh, fix it and uh, engage in the work of improving bureaucracies and not throwing away the, the child with the bathwater. I encourage you to uh, get involved with the Innovation Field Lab here at the YES Center uh, or the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative where a lot of the work that we do in innovation is really about um, you know, improving uh, the capabilities of the states to do good in the world. Uh, and with that, I thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to be here. It is uh, a really interesting book. I think one of your comments just now was these are extreme cases of dysfunction. I thought when I read the book, I read them and I thought uh, uh, what, what's so attractive to me is they're so commonplace uh, <laughs> that actually most of them, I think uh, most of us are in and around these kinds of things all the time, engaging with uh, medical bureaucracies, engaging with bureaucracies around uh, uh, businesses or around everyday life, and, and to see you know, how much dysfunction there is behind the things that don't work that we kind of throw our hands in the air about is, is, is quite interesting. Um, and we run into them all the time. I've got a couple of my teammates here. We, we're working in Sri Lanka at the moment, and. Uh, the, the government is trying to promote, um, well, 
there are some entrepreneurs who are trying to build yachts. They, they think that Sri Lanka could be a place where they have a yachting industry. And uh, there's this, uh, this wild and woolly um, Belgian who, uh, who, who is trying to develop uh, this yacht uh, building industry. And um, my team looks at export numbers every year, and we see that, you know, one year there's $3 million worth of exports of yachts. And then the next year there's like $150,000. Then the next year, there's something else, and we, what's going on with this? And you speak to this crazy uh, Belgian, and he says, well, it's the bureaucracy, man. And you say, well, what's wrong with the bureaucracy? And he says, well, we go to the Board of Investment, and we get a permit to build yachts. And we think that we've won, because it took us, you know, three years to get the permit to build the yachts. And we had to go through five million hoops to, 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 build, to get that permit. And then we start building the yacht. Now, we've never built yachts before. And we're building the yacht in a dry dock. And we're thinking, well, this is a great yacht. And we've, we're going to sell it to someone. Now we need to put it into the water so we can test to see how the yacht works. And they say, but you don't have a permit to sell the yacht. Now we have to go a year and a half and get a permit to sell the yacht. And we can't get the permit to sell the yacht because uh, that's a completely different department and that's using water and that's environment and everything. So we have to sell the yacht without having ever tested the yacht to see if it actually sails. And then they were saying, you know, the after-sales uh, uh, attention and costs that were associated with that because of the bureaucratic dysfunction were significant. So, you know, we see this all over the place. I think... Um, when you start to realize that bureaucratic dysfunction is everywhere and in Harvard and all over the place and is, is part and parcel of organizations that are trying to do the right thing, is, it, it, it isn't necessarily a, an indication that an organization is, is against you. It is this kind of intersection of values that conflict um, of, of layers of solutions that have emerged over time in response to specific issues um, that, that, that over time kind of create, a, I guess, like a cornucopia of madness. Um, and they trap a lot of the people in the system because they then don't even know what it is that they are dealing with and, and, and they can't wake, work their way out of it. When you start to realize that, I think you start to move away from thinking about very, very simple solutions to the world. Um, when I read the book, my first response is I'm really glad that Europe is the person who's responsible for the Bloomberg Initiative uh, because um, he's dealing with people who, uh, in many cases, especially mayors, are, are coming into positions sometimes from um, vantage point where they think this is just simple, let's make government act like a business. And, um, you know, why would you want government to be like United Airlines? I don't know. <laughs> or the Trump organization for that sir. So I'm, I'm glad that there's somebody here who can say to people, it, it, reforming governments is a lot less like finding the answer and implementing the answer, and a lot more like taking governments with their citizens through a process of therapy, uh, where they start to understand what's wrong, and they start to understand their own part in that. Um, 
what I particularly liked about the book is the way in which you identify what some of these dysfunctions are and you create some categories because I think that is always useful for people to be able to think what, what you know, what, what bucket is my craziness uh, uh, landing in? Um, the, it, on the flip side, you know, I find we don't have those kind of buckets when we are uh, working with governments, and sometimes I find it useful for them to, to, to self-identify in their own language uh, and with their own kind of realization about what it is that's going on. So, um, you know, I, I, I thought that would be an interesting thing to, to discuss. How useful is it to say, here are, the, here are the buckets, Is you know, where do you fit, versus, you know, maybe saying to people, let's think uh, organically what's wrong with you. Um, but I thought that that is useful, and it was useful in all the cases to see the different kinds of dysfunctions that were happening. Um, the, it, it, the approach that you take to get out of the dysfunction is very similar to the approach that we work with as well, which is, you know, let's iteratively try some things. I think uh, the next book that I want is the book that, 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 that goes much more into the detail of those iterations. Uh, because I think it's like you're saying, uh, you need to have an iterative process to learn your way out of your dysfunction. And, and, and at the moment, I see the, the, the process of coming up to the ideas is really well documented and really interesting. And I, I loved, uh, now I think I have an older version of the book, but I, I hope it's in the new version too, the, the discussion of we had a meeting, they all had a great conversation about what was going wrong, and then I asked them the question, well, what are your ideas? And there was like two minutes of absolute silence. Yeah. And I thought, that's kind of what our meetings sound like when we're in country as well. And, um, and uh, you know, when uh, a few years ago when we were working in Albania, we had, uh, I had an intern with me uh, from the Kennedy School. And we were in one of these moments where there was just this prolonged moment of absolute silence, which is then followed by a longer uh, uh, moment of shouting and screaming and people jumping up and blaming each other because no one had any ideas. And he was said to me, you know, like, like it's all going wrong. We're not doing this right. And I said, just, just relax. Let people kind of work this out. And I think that there's something very real about what is in your book. I think the process then of trying those solutions out and learning about the, which solutions work, I think, is, is as important. Um, and it's partly because I think what we find is that when you do the diagnosis uh, of, let's say, the dysfunction uh, up front, you're only getting part of it. And I'm sure that this is the case as well with you guys. It's when you actually start to treat it that you start to really understand the depth of it. And it's when almost the dysfunction compounds itself to, 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 to work against you in trying to kind of resolve it. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll close with uh, uh, one of my favorite stories of, of bureaucratic dysfunction. When we were working in Albania, we've been working for a while. Um, it, is, it is by far to me the hardest place that I've ever worked in. Um, you know, it's, it's one of, I come from South Africa, which is a country that is a few hundred years old. And we have our own problems, but our problems are only a few hundred years old. Uh, and um, in Albania, the place is like thousands of years old. And so, you know, the bureaucratic dysfunction is, is really, really entrenched. Uh, when I worked in Georgia before, 
and things didn't work, uh, I'd say to them, gee, you know, it's not working. This is terrible. And they'd say, oh, we've had it much worse before. And I would say, when was it worse than this? And they said, well, in, in 1150, you know, <laughs> this happened. And, uh, and you realize that, you know, these things are layered. So when we were working in Albania right at the beginning, and it gets this culture thing, because I think this, this to me keeps coming up, and it also gets to the question of kind of how well do the categories travel uh, across places, which we spend a lot of time thinking about is, you know, we were, we were just running into just dysfunction compounding dysfunction again and again, and I didn't understand what was going on. And someone said, you need to read some of the novels of Albanians about Albania. And one of the stories that I read was about uh, Kosovo, and uh, it, uh, it was called Four Stories of Kosovo, if I'm correct. And, um, and, and w w one of them was about how the, uh, the, the nations in the Balkans that, you know, hated each other, which, uh, you know, they still do, I guess. Um, and uh, the, the Serbs and the Albanians kept fighting over Kosovo. Uh, but then the Ottoman Empire marched upon all of them, so they decided now they had to come together to fight the Ottomans. And every uh, nation had its praise singers. And the praise singers would sing praise for their kings, but they would spend an equal amount of time sin singing terrible songs about <laughs> the others. And the night before the battle with the Turks or the Ottomans, they, um, the, the praise singers were in the tent with all of the kings, and the Serbian uh, praise singer was singing all of these terrible songs about the Albanian. Uh, and then the Albanian praise singer did the same to the Serbs. And the kings were laughing and saying, you know, isn't it amazing how we can't even get, like, decent songs when we have to get in, in a unified battle? Uh, so then the next morning, before they even woke up uh, from their slumber, the Ottomans had already run over the entire combined force and, um, and, and slaughtered them. And uh, the story has it that the only people that got away were the praise singers. And the praise singers now, you've got the Serbian praise singer with the... Uh, with the Albanian pressing, and they make their way up into Germany. And now they are the best of friends. They are the only people from the Balkans who are left alive in the tale. And um, they are playing the instruments on the side of the road, and a German uh, woman says to them, will you come and play at a dinner party for me? And now they, they haven't performed in a long time. And so they go to the dinner party, and before dinner, she says, can you tell me your story? And she, they, 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 they tell this, this, this story of how they're the only ones left, and it's terrible, and they've developed this amazing friendship, and their nations used to hate each other, etc. But now they, they, they're the best of friends, and they say, will you play? And the Serbian uh, starts to sing songs about how terrible the Albanians are. <laughs> and the Albanian say, starts to sing songs about how terrible the Serbians are. And the story has it that the Germans at the dinner start to get very uneasy and actually very angry. And they say, you know, you're bad people because you're meant to be the best of friends, but you're singing these terrible songs about each other. And so the German woman intervenes and tries to kind of, you know, manage something. And she says, can't you sing a different song together? And uh, in unison, they say, no, because we would have to get permissions from the generals and they are dead. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that that is, uh, in, that is the dysfunction that we regularly find when we work in Albania uh, a thousand years after the story was told. Um, and 
I think it, it, it's a very interesting thing because very seriously, that is the reality in many places. And it doesn't really matter if you come in with a new computer system or if you come in with ideas from the private sector or if you come in with the best consultants in the world. If that's the dysfunction you're dealing with, that's the dysfunction that needs to be dealt with in order for you to make progress. And I think that's kind of that nuance, that deep message is what comes through so strongly in the book and why I think it really is important for anyone uh, working on organizations. And, and by definition, anyone working on public policy should be reading this book. So thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me to discuss it. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I will try to be relatively quick so we have some time for conversation. First, though, thanks for the opportunity to uh, join the panel and talk about dealing with dysfunction. Uh, as others have said, this book is, on many levels, a very remarkable book. First, I give Yorick credit for providing probably the most thorough and yet concise discussion of bureaucracy, organizations, function, and dysfunction. Um, I spent several years in graduate school reading all of this stuff. You should read these chapters uh, because it's presented in a, in a really um, sort of focused and thoughtful way, and particularly because he's done such a great job of integrating the theory with the policy analytic frameworks that we find so useful at the Kennedy School, this idea of simple uh, complicated and complex cases of red tape, um, drawing on Mark Moore's distinction between uh, service, provide, service encounters and obligation encounters, and linking that to the types of mismatches by using the idea of false negatives and false positives. This is a really powerful set of frameworks. I also loved the uh, problem of many hands and multiple values because that's what I run into, uh, run into very often. But I'd like to take this opportunity to really push you for the next book. Um, and I think that the framework that you set up of finding really complex cases and looking at identifying the cases, defining the situation and problem, uh, diagnosing the problem and challenge, and designing a remedy is a useful framework. But the question is, how do you sustain this? And what happens over time when you sustain this? Uh, when I first started thinking about this, I, uh, my first thought was CompStat and the idea of putting data out there and getting an organization where various units didn't work together to start working together. And we all know that in pushing that, it created uh, a lot of opportunities for improvement, but also it created some opportunities for problems as well. I then thought of something really quite smaller, which is closer to the work I do in child welfare, and that is one of the things that many of us really are disturbed by is that every year 25,000 young adults age out of foster care to independent living with no families to support them. And the question has been, surely 25,000 a year spread across 50 states and the District of Columbia, we could do something about this. There's an initiative now, um, uh, it's funded by the Annie Casey Foundation, which it gets to some of your discussions about where do you get funding and how do you handle this, which is saying, could we create long-term learning collaboratives where we have found some people who have thought about this working with others spread across the country 
who are just beginning to think about it, and what would we learn over time? And one of the most important things we learned was that there are an awful lot of social workers who believe that no one wants to adopt or become a guardian for or become a permanent support system for an adolescent because adolescents are challenging, particularly this group of adolescents that's seen a lot of trauma in their lives. But the more they started working on it and the more they started coming up with ideas, the more they began to change their practice. But it wouldn't have happened had it not been a longer-term uh, relationship. And for me, one of the most important things was they had to come to grips with the fact that um, they really had to change their attitudes about the future and the possibilities and the opportunities uh, for these youth. One story that someone told was um, they asked a social worker, well, have you talked to this child's mom? And the social worker said, no, she's in jail. And the person who was talking to her said, all she has is time, and she'd come up with some really good suggestions, just moving people out of their safe zone. And this gets me to uh, something that um, Tony mentioned about the Innovations Awards. I have, many of you who know me have heard me say a number of times that my favorite thing to do at the Kennedy School is innovation site visits. I find them both, I find them amazing, um, exhilarating, um, uh, thought-provoking, but I've often come away with a set of questions. And the questions I have, and these are the ones I think you should be getting at in your next book, is what is it about those individuals who are in situations who say, there are some possibilities here and I could take the lead? Um, they tend to have been, the few sites, my limited observation, they tend to have been around for a long time. They're passionate about what they do, but they're really disgruntled with the outcomes. And they're sort of implicitly empirical in looking at, at what's uh, going on. Um, second, they tell me that there are always a few people around them who agree with them and are right there for them. And this is the army of the willing, and they're marching out together. And then there's a large group of people who, once they see the change, and see what the possibilities are, get engaged, and want to follow along. But they've also said, in response to my questions, that there are some people who are unwilling to move in that direction, and they leave. Um, because not everybody out there wants to solve these problems or wants to uh, change some of the values uh, under which they work or change their own behavior. So I think you've really created a, a set of um, frameworks of analytic tools that can be applied to a whole range of issues, a whole range of challenges. And I think you've set up a framework through the Kafka Brigade of identifying some challenges and bringing them to the attention of others and figuring out what kind of leadership needs to be there. But the next question, I think, is how do you sustain that and keep pushing that so that we get organizational change. And also, as you point out, sometimes the environment changes around us, and what used to be a good idea is no longer a good idea. So what does it take to sustain it? So you've started us all off. You've got us inspired. Uh, and now we're going to follow you out <laughs> on this. Thanks. Great. I mean, certainly when I was, you know, working at Ford Foundation, I found an interconnected set of problems with this. The first was where Julie finished, and that was the question of sustainability of innovation. 
But then there were two other sets of questions that came on from that, really. And the, the first of those really was, is the innovation so particular to that environment that it is or it is not transferable? So we always ran into this problem of very in-depth, detailed uh, programs which we could run over a long period of time, but then could you transfer it to other environments? And what is the mechanism that helps with that transferability? And that related to the other challenge that we always uh, came into, which, which is a different, slightly different way of saying the same thing, was the scaling up of experiences. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? How do you find those agents that can help you with scaling up? So I think they all kind of wrap into that, that set of challenges that comes after this, this kind of work. We have some time now, and the floor is open. If people would like to make comments or they have questions they'd like to raise, I think there's microphones. And um, please just tell us who you are. And uh, yes, there's a lady here, if you first, please. Thank you. My name is Barbara Thornton, and I have a question. Uh, this is, this, for those of you who don't know, is town meeting season in New England. <laughs> and when I think about dysfunction, I think about where sometimes I would say it all starts. And I speak as a town meeting member. Um, <laughs> you have all of these people in 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts who feel obligated to come up with new regulations every season <laughs> this time of year. How would you stop that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> three years ago, Tony created a wonderful opportunity uh, for me and many people here in the, in the audience uh, to do some work with uh, Massachusetts cities. And so we started working on problem properties, we call it the Innovation Field Lab. And, uh, you know, in, in part, you know, we're, we're starting to collect the data for the next book because we work on five. Uh, on, on the same issue in five different communities uh, that look similar but are really different, parts of, in part because of their political system, because their you know, demographic composition, because the nature of their problems. And um, so we're going to hopefully learn a lot about um, what those um, capabilities are that um, that are required to do this work and make it sustainable but also to make it travel across different contexts. So one of the things I learned about your question in specific, uh, specifically is that you know, the governance systems of local government are you know, historically very uh, highly variable in New England, right? And so uh, it's probably, I, I would venture this hypothesis that uh, all dysfunctional town meetings <laughs> look alike, right? Uh, or, or functional town meetings look alike, but dysfunctional or dysfunctional in their own way. Mm. Uh, so you could uh, apply this analysis to that town meeting as an organization, as a group of people who try to do collective work and have a certain working process, a certain governance structure. Uh, but then below that governance structure, there's personalities, there's cultures, there's interests, right? And so um, if you want to stop people from suggesting uh, regulations, uh, the question is, you know, what motivates them to propose those regulations every season? Is it just a matter of habit? that just don't know any better, in which case you could expose them to alternatives of regulation? Uh, is it because uh, that is the way to increase your status in the system? Like if you can be associated with a new regulation, you've accomplished something. And so then there's an incentive to propose regulation, whereas you know it's not helping anyone but you. Um, uh, so maybe that could be the case. 
or maybe it's uh, because you know the, um, the, 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 the the problems that are occurring in the, the in the city are just too variable uh, and uh, are not necessarily um, uh, well understood so if you know very often if people grapple with a problem that they can't fix you know they're they want to be seen as doing something and you know very often after a, uh, a scandal or a crisis or a tragic incident you know people feel powerless don't know how it happened but want to be seen as uh, capable and responsive to the problem and so they just feel that you know a, reg a new regulation is at least giving the impression of doing something about it even though it does uh, you know it doesn't really help so any of those hypotheses could be tested right and so I wouldn't be surprised if you know the dysfunction as perceived by you uh, would, would be a variable across different cities but uh, it's worth the diagnostic process Good. Please. One thing, and that is uh, one thing I meant to mention but didn't mention is I think there has to be space for trying things and learning and making mistakes. And um, certainly in the child welfare field where I work, the press is all over the agencies, and it's really hard to have those opportunities. I had a student last uh, semester who is a reporter in Japan and was uh, reporting after the uh, earthquake and the, mm -hmm. the, the disasters. And the government got them to, in addition to going out and just getting people's responses, to, to do a little work for them, to say, to try to get a sense of how they felt about the mental health of the members of their family and others, and if they knew where to go to get help. They said, don't get into diagnosis. That's not what the press does. But we don't know what people know or don't know. And so another question is, can the press become an ally in terms of uh, sort of capturing information about what the challenges are, what the options might be, and preparing for the town meeting, as opposed to just pouncing. Interesting. Gentleman here. Sure. Um, hi, my name is Colin Murphy. I'm an MPP student here. Uh, thank you for the overview and for the thoughts. Um, my question is around uh, whether there are ways that you've seen or you can imagine that bureaucracy can help heal itself. Uh, bureaucracy is clearly powerful, and, and some of those characteristics you listed at the start, the six characteristics, can be good and can be bad, as you showed. And I'm wondering if you've seen examples where, um, yeah, yeah, the bureaucracy kind of either turns against itself in, in a good way, such, such that it, it eases some of the dysfunction. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't think it, bureaucracy can heal itself, <laughs> uh, you know, because bureaucracy is... Um, not an actor in this, but uh, if you mean that a organization, collection of people, collective of people that are organized along bureaucratic principles could do better, could become a learning organization, uh, yes. Uh, so the interesting, so one of the quotes that I, I didn't put on the slide because my colleagues uh, taught me not to use too much text on the slides, but then you lose the quotes. <laughs> so the, uh, the, the I'm still going to give it. <laughs> so, so Max Weber said a, a, a you know a, um, a bureaucratic organization is characterized by you know efficiency and standardization, formalization, expert officialdom, and so forth. But then Michel Crozier, a French sociologist, uh, in 1964 said, well. I have a different definition. A bureaucratic organization is an organization that cannot learn from its errors. Mm -hmm. right? So he, he's like, 
according to him, that was impossible. You know, couldn't heal itself, couldn't transcend its own contradictions. Uh, I, I did some work in practice after I wrote the book and did some workshops with the um, Ombudsman of Toronto and the Ombudsman of Amsterdam. And so uh, I was really happy to hear, first of all, that the Ombudsman of Amsterdam is uh, applying those uh, frameworks uh, in practice. So he's trained his people and uh, he's a hard-hitting Ombudsman. He goes after a lot of um, unresolved problems in Amsterdam. Uh, and uh, I thought he was going to make a lot of enemies uh, because people didn't like to be exposed and uh, they felt like um, indicted. You know, many ombudsmen have this adversarial relationship with, with the government, right? It turned out that uh, if you combine these principle, diagnostic principles with deep empathy, right, and with uh, an extended hand to say, well, you know, let's, let's improve this together, uh, then it can be actually successful. And the indicator of success is that he was, and this has never happened in the history of the Netherlands, last year he was elected uh, government manager of the year cool. as an ombudsman, right? <laughs> and the election, you know, who elected him? Uh, bureaucrats, right? Civil servants elected him. So that was, I think, an extremely, um, you know, uh, good example of, you know, how even if you're very thorough and rigorous in your analysis and, and um, you know, action-oriented and really care about improvement, that it doesn't have to um, you know, lead to an adversarial relationship, but you can actually maybe to use your language, heal organization or collectively improve the system. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what is the best institutional platform to use the set of principles, right? Can it be done from within a bureaucracy? Uh, can it only be done from the outside? Uh, uh, maybe uh, it is you know, the most important variable is those individuals that just stand up and say, well, <laughs> you know, I'm willing to take this on, right? And it's about, it's about finding and fostering those, um, you know, examples of individual agency. So, um, yeah, that's for the next book. I think, I think <laughs> my comment is, I mean, I, I, think, I think you do have examples. I mean, I don't know what you mean by, you know, whether, where they heal themselves, but I think where they sit, where bureaucracies have without the assistance of a Kafka brigade or an outside party uh, identified dysfunction and dealt with it. I think it happens. Well, but I think that, yeah. yeah, and I think, I think it does happen. But I do think that there are some of the, the, there are some things that you see there and they may be quite similar to what you see when you have the Kafka brigade actually. And if, if I remember one of the quotes that you have in, in, in your book is about uh, something like leadership is about creating spaces for organizations to learn or something, something to that ex extent. And I mean, what I think happens is you can have somebody in an organization creating, creating a space for the organization to reflect on itself. And I think that that's really important. If you don't have that person on the inside doing that, then you might need help. And that's where some, there's a space for someone like the Kafka Brigade. I think the other thing that I would say is important in the organizations, and I'm thinking of you know, a case which, 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 which I worked on about a, a, a Mexican development bank that really worked itself through its dysfunction into being something quite effective, was, was that they had somebody who created that space, but also they, they engaged more with their ecosystem. 
than they did before when, you know, when they were dysfunctional. And I think that a key part of the book is this understanding of the interaction of the bureaucracy and the customer or the citizen. Mm -hmm. And that one of the ways that you, you recognize the dysfunction is by engaging in the relationship that you have, by getting the feedback and by looking at that relationship. And I think that where you see where organizations are forced uh, to reflect on themselves vis-a-vis -vis the people that they serve, the people they engage with, whether it's firms or whether it's whatever, and where they have a space in which they can learn. I think that you can create that process where they can identify some things that are wrong and then they can create a process of getting out of it. But if you don't have those people putting their yeah. hands up, that's where, yeah. you need, yeah. that's where you need the help. I, think, I mean, the case of Amsterdam doesn't surprise me in the sense that People working in the bureaucracies are also consumers of the bureaucracy. Yeah. Yeah. And invariably, they know the problems and the faults. And, you know, <coughs> it reminds me, you know, ClickGuard's work on corruption. You know, mm -hmm. those, those people engaged in it know best where it happens. They yeah. feel uncomfortable with it often, and they know best what the solutions are. So I think, as you say, if someone comes in with empathy, I think a lot of people are willing to work yeah. to change yeah. that for those reasons. So we have somebody here, uh, one, two, three, four, and then we're going to have to wrap up, I'm afraid. Um, so, I just want to piggyback on the woman to my right. My name is Elodia Thomas. I come from Watertown. I jumped on York last fall when I heard he was going to be heading up uh, this new program and thought, yay, maybe we have something going on for the small communities in Massachusetts. Unfortunately, you have to be a city of 100,000 or more. Hmm. We are about 32,000, four square miles. And I said, please, please come up with something for Massachusetts towns and cities, because most of them are quite small. And I love what you're talking about. I love what Matt just said about finding space to reflect. But um, we're a perfect laboratory for you. I'm going to offer myself up on your altar. Um, we have so much development going on. We have so many issues about housing, economic diversity, et cetera, et cetera. And I am urging you to think about taking some of these principles. I haven't read your book back, but you know I'll be right back. Um, and, and take some of these principles and see if there's some kind of um, series of workshops that could be done, which would be great for town-gown relationships, would make everybody love you a little bit more because you're part of the pressure on our community, um, but to try to do this in a creative way for a uh, wider community benefit because um, we, uh, you know, we don't have town meeting. We have town councilors and a town manager. Uh, Somerville has a mayor and aldermen, so there are three forms of government basically in Mass, and we're all suffering. And one of the biggest issues that I hear every place I go is communication, communication, communication. And it would be a wonderful area to kind of look at for diagnosis. Um, so I'm just here throwing out an idea. So who would like <laughs> well, the, the microphone next? around for the reception and we'll talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. I think it's one of the things that the field lab program that uh, Yorick was talking about is trying to address. It's already working with five different cities in Massachusetts. So maybe with capacity we can expand. Please. Why don't we take, sorry, because of time, why don't we take the, the questions, comments together and then ask the three people to make some response. Okay, some. Uh, so the example you brought in some of them are uh, the dysfunction is accidental, I will say. But in some countries, like mine, Colombia, uh, I can find some examples where, where the dysfunction is intentional. And I, 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 I have like a three reasons that I have uh, seen in, uh, in, in, in government. 
One is uh, corruption. So when, when a dysfunction like this happens, it's easier uh, for, I mean, to, uh, it's a good environment for corruption because you can pay to jump some of these uh, many steps, for example. The other one is delays. And sometimes, intentionally, governments want to delay the provision of services because they don't have the money to, to provide all the services. So you put like a, this big trap so no, uh, no everybody can claim, for, for example, for drugs in the health system. And also um, for elitism. Uh, so uh, we have proved that when we want to, uh, the, the, the system to work, it works. And it works for, for, the po for the powerful people, but not exactly for everyone. So, uh, so this is my, my, and my question is, uh, what incentives to, uh, to break this function uh, be, uh, should be uh, put in place? Hi, uh, Karen Feinberg, Feinberg Consulting, originally affiliated through the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. Um, so I had three thoughts. One is um, I always uh, experience speed very intensely, and uh, nobody has time, and great people racing through. So how do you get people to think that they can actually, and help create space, but also space to slow down, almost like, offer them meditation, but that's really reductive. But that whole notion of speed, um, that's one thought. And then in terms of if when you do your workshops, um, how do you help break people break down their own paradigms and expose their paradigms to one another in terms of values, in terms of decision-making, in terms of even faith, how that drives people in different ways. And then the third thing, from a life sciences community, I um, saw this really cool tool that they were using to help people um, diagnose their own ability as an organization, but individuals of uh, their uh, capacity to risk, to take risk um, for in terms of innovation. So those are three thoughts, and I'm wondering if you could speak to those. Uh, Sharon Block from the Labor and Work Life Program at the law school. And I was wondering if you have thought about what the consequences may be of sort of the existential threat in this country to public sector unions um, and what will happen when sort of that player, especially if you're looking at bottom-up solutions, you know, the, the, the decrease in their, in their power and leverage and, and how that's affecting sort of efforts to address problems and bureaucracies. Before you uh, have the last word, just let people know you can stay on after. There's food and drink, so please stay, and uh, there's a chance to talk further and circulate. Why don't we start? If Matt has any last thoughts, then Julie, and we'll leave Yorick with the last word. Those were, those were really tough questions. Uh, you know, I think uh, the speed thing, I, I, I think, is more about busyness. Uh, the number one problem I think that, you know, my team, we face is you go into a government and they say, oh, it's really interesting. We'd love to work with you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, w we need to have a billion dollars of, of FDI in, in six months' time. You say to them, you've, you've never had a billion dollars of FDI in your whole like, history of your country. Uh, you know, and, and, then they s and then people say, well, you know, you know, performance is really required. And I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, most places we work, there's never been performance ever. Um, so it's not really about speed. It's what's required is people appearing to be busy all the time. And I think that the first thing is kind of, you know, disabusing them of what they're talking about and saying, you're talking about jumping up and down, not about achieving things. Um, and I think part of, part of the challenge is about, you know, getting people to recognize that. 
getting them then this is why I was emphasizing I think you know when we do the problem diagnosis um, typically we'll we work with teams and we diagnose it in kind of a day with with teams and we jump them straight into action because we we, we say if you want to be busy we're gonna make you busy you're gonna be working harder than you've ever worked before um, but then we stop every three weeks and we say we have someone who goes there and says uh, so so what did you what did you do and what did you learn and what are you doing next uh, we don't spend a huge amount of time on that because people are busy. But you know, you create an hour, you create an hour and a half. Uh, don't don't think that you need major workshops. You need to, especially in government, recognise that um, people do feel pressure if they're in meetings and things like that. But you don't. You, you those moments of reflection don't have to be tremendously long. What happens is if you're doing them fairly regularly, after three or four months, something starts to happen and people start to say. This is really useful for me. Um, you know, just stopping and thinking becomes tremendously useful, and it's that when it becomes part of what they do for themselves. The issue with um, you know purposeful dysfunction, it is difficult, uh, and it, 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 the 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 challenge is that you're not then dealing with dysfunction; you're dealing with functionality. Uh, you know, the issue with when, when Bob Clitgard, uh, uh so Bob was, Bob was my mentor when I was still an, an undergraduate student in South Africa. And, and, and Bob used to say, you know, when you're having a corrupt state, the corrupt, the people think that corruption is, is about dysfunction. He's like, no, it's being completely functional. It's just achieving something other than what you think it should achieve. And I think that uh, when, when you're dealing with a system that is functional at doing something that it shouldn't be doing, it's a, it may be a different beast to dealing with a system that is being dysfunctional at doing something that it knows it should do. So uh, it may be that there's a different strategy that you need to deal with that. I'm not completely sure of it, but I, 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 I do think it's kind of worth considering. Um, just on the, the busyness and pulling some of the models together, I think one of the things we found and I found on the innovations site visits is people have begun to ask, what is it that we're doing that we don't really need to be doing? For example, we keep having forms to be filled out. We add new ones. We don't ever take any away. Um, how is it that technology might be able to help us, and how do we deal with confidentiality? But it takes people a while to make these changes. And once people start thinking about this, um, then more ideas come up. Someone was telling me about a Halloween uh, party wall for the Department of Child Welfare in Missouri, which was the graveyard of no longer used forms. They had spent the entire year walking, you know, sort of saying, we're not sure why we do this. It's duplicated here. They'd, then they got everybody really thinking in terms of using some of your frameworks in terms of problem solving of saying, why are we doing this? It's just adding time. Um, now, there are some downtimes, and for those of you who use the Harvard Square Post Office, they are so helpful and so friendly, and the downside of being helpful and friendly is that the lines are really long. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I think those are all wonderful questions. And, you know, to start with your um, question about in intentional dysfunction or, you know, uh, as, as Matt said, well, then, then it's really functional but for a different reason. One of the quotes in the book is actually a quote from uh, uh, one of the books of Heifetz that I really like, and it says, uh, there's no such thing as a dysfunctional system. Every system is perfectly aligned to produce the results it currently gets, right? It's just <laughs> not the results you, you like, right? And so very often when we engage with a system, 
we had to figure out, well, how dissatisfied are the people in this room, really, right? And, and so it also goes back to creating, uh, uh, to your question, um, after you've done the objective analysis, the inquiry, you know, you've done the process mapping, you've, you've done the statistical analysis, you know how many people are affected and in what way and for how much money and how much pain, uh, you know, as a result of the way the system currently works. If you've done all that analysis, you still need to do the work, the leadership work, of uh, getting people to, um, to take more in consideration the task at hand the public value that's at stake mm. uh, and make that more important than the particular job descriptions that they've signed up for, right? Because those job descriptions may have become obsolete in the face of new circumstances. Once they were perfect, maybe not, but once maybe they fit the, 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 the task at hand. And so in order to do that, we had to kind of create choreographies, for lack of a better word, where I'll give you one example. So we, we would bring the you know, uh, the victim of bureaucracy, so to speak, an emblematic, not necessarily representative, but emblematic um, a client uh, that was emblematic for the, the problem that affected a wider category of people. And so people say, you can't do that. You know, so we had, uh, I worked in Wales with the Kafka Brigade, and so we did work on domestic violence. So we had victims of domestic violence that, and there were like, 20 different care providers that really wanted to help this woman, you know, from the emergency room to social work and, and you know, safe homes and, and, and child protective services and everything. And so, uh, you know, we had interviewed those victims uh, with their, you know, uh, really um, tragic, tragic stories. And we, we realized that not only did the clients have most information about how the system worked, also they represented the task at hand. And there is an emotional energy that comes from really facing a human being that has a real lived experience, yes. and that um, and that you uh, and so what we did uh, it was bring that person in the room and convene all the frontline people that with their best attentions failed to help the woman, uh, and their managers and the policymakers. Sometimes we would have 45 people in a room, and we had a rule: before the break, you cannot talk about solutions. Mm. We're just gonna we're just gonna make this really really hard, yeah. and we're gonna yeah. establish everybody's perspective, and and if you hear everybody's perspective, you know and you realize that your perspective is not the only one, and that this yes this is a complex issue, and yes this this has uh, impact on so many levels, right? Um, so then, for example, the dissatisfaction alienation that the frontline worker, uh, the child protective officer faces, uh, or the, the anxiety that he or she feels about having to deal with this overwhelming task is also validated. Just like the, you know, the, the suffering that the woman has gone through. Or the manager that says, well, I wish I could do more for these people, but I'm, my budget is cut every year, right? So everybody has pain in that system. So before the break, no solutions. Let's just really uh, uh, take in the complexity and the seriousness of the problem. Then after the break, um, no more talking about explanations, and because you can go on forever. Right. Uh, you could go back to 1050, right? Yeah, right. exactly. When the generals were still alive, <coughs> right? So, um, so then, and, and that's you know that's where those moments you refer to is like the, the moment of silence. So what can we do? Right? 
And then, now that you've established, uh, established that the, the problem is so complex, you feel that emotional energy. You, you, you basically slow down the process of like, oh, we just need more IT, or we need more budget, more training, more staff, right? Um, if you've really grappled with the, with the issue, then the question is, okay, so maybe there is no big solution, right? So maybe help is not going to come from the federal government. So maybe we'll have to deal with this a little longer. Now, are we going to accept this with the person in the room? Are we going to tell that person, like, yes, sorry, <laughs> no money, right? No. Um, then you see that you, uh, you create the conditions under which leadership can occur. So we would see situations where people say, well, I can't stand this. These 30 seconds are killing me, 30 seconds of silence because nobody has a solution. So, like, I can make an another phone call. I can share my information. I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to do that. So we would just take a flip chart and put the 20 or 25 solutions. So you could only offer a solution if the sentence starts with I. Well, mm. I can. And then those 20 individual contributions turn out to be much more effective <laughs> and much more helpful in the short term than any big blueprints that somebody else would be responsible for. So working with that energy, I, I, can't say, I can't say I've mastered that art, but I really knew that doing the analysis was not good enough and that there is something uh, that has to do with, with um, creating that holding environment in which you know, people are, you appeal to people's emotional connection to the issue as well as their cognitive perspective on it. Um, yeah, I'll come back to the union question over drinks, okay? Because <laughs> that's a whole different <laughs> yes. can of worms. And I, I have a perspective on that. But, um, yeah, so, uh, so let me just uh, uh, stop there. But not without uh, thinking a couple. Of, so I, I give credit to Kafka, to Weber. Uh, and, uh, Mark, you weren't in the room, but I put you in that, in that <laughs> tradition. I, I hope you feel comfortable there. Uh, you know, um, <coughs> and uh, as well as uh, I, I saw Bob Bain here earlier, um, who's done amazing work on democratic accountability. That's really informed the book, as well as Malcolm Sparrow, who talks. Uh, you should definitely talk to Malcolm about the corruption issue, especially yeah. in Colombia, because he worked there. But also the, the notion of a problem-solving uh, infrastructure within or superimposed on a bureaucracy. So. So, I mean, very often people say, well, can't we just design a better bureaucracy, right? I mean, <laughs> let's just reorganize or restructure the departments. And so, uh, you know, that's, that only lasts so long because the world keeps changing, right? And so you never get it right for long. So uh, this notion of a problem-solving infrastructure where you invest in the capabilities to do the work that goes across silos and that's really problem-oriented rather than, you know, departmental or silo-oriented, that's important. And, uh, Quentin, I think you're in the back there, uh, and Sean, who is in the very back. So in this innovation field lab, we're trying to kind of build on those notions and, um, you know, do more detailed uh, action research uh, on what kind of capabilities can we build in real time in Massachusetts cities to, you know, increase the likelihood that bureaucracies can be their better selves. So um, let me stop there. Great. Well, join me in thanking uh, Jorik for a great book and for Julie and Matt. For great uh, comments. Thanks. You've been listening to Ashcast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media at Harvard Ash.